Welcome to Deep Dive, a podcast for educators by educators. What is a self-organised learning environment? How has this pedagogical approach helped with teacher and student engagement? And is there a place for curiosity in our classrooms? And if so, how can this be achieved using a soul session? These are a few of the questions we will discuss in today's episode of Deep Dive, and I am extremely lucky to have with me today to discuss these topics two very experienced middle and upper primary teachers, Yvette and Kerry. I would like to welcome you all to our third episode of Deep Dive and thank our guests for being here for our conversation today. Today we will be delving deeply into the area of self-organised learning environments. What are they, you might ask? At the beginning of March, I was on the lounge relaxing one Saturday afternoon and was just scrolling through some social media sites and came across an article about Sagata Mitra. I'm sure right now some of our listeners are nodding and mumbling, yes, I've heard of him before. I think he was the educator who did that experiment in India where he put a computer in the wall. This thinking is correct. Well, the article that popped up on my phone was not about that experiment, but the fact that Sagata Mitra was named the 2022 Brock Prize recipient in Education Innovation for his transformational work in rethinking the way children learn. Sagata Mitra is probably best known in the education community for developing the concept of self-organised learning environments following his hole-in-the-wall experiments in 1999 where he placed a computer in the wall of an Indian slum and observed that given the right circumstances, children could teach each other almost anything. Since that time, Seoul has become a part of mainstream education worldwide, increasing opportunities for thousands of people. Today, we are very lucky to have with us two experienced teachers who have been using Seoul as part of their classrooms. Yvette and Kerry, can you give our listeners a basic understanding of self-organised learning environments and maybe what got you started using Soul in your classrooms as a pedagogical approach and how it has impacted on your practice? Welcome, Yvette, and would you like to kick off our conversation today? Certainly. So a self-organised learning environment, or Soul, it's basically fueled by big questions, collaboration, student voice, and just providing that supportive climate for students to really feel empowered to take ownership on their learning. Um, And when you're thinking about with the deep learning competencies, it's just a natural fit. Um, The premise behind the SOL strategy lies in the theory that students are actually capable of learning for themselves and also for teaching themselves. And it's a strategy based on collaboration with that big question or provocation used as the basis for internet research. One of the most important things with using the Soul strategy is setting up the rules of the game first. So I would go through with the students, talk through those rules in the different phases. So there are three phases of the structure of a Soul. There's the question, the investigation, and the review phase. So the question phase, really the most important part, because it's how you hook the kids in, spark that curiosity. So the big questions are a crucial part of it. And it's really about finding questions that there's no easy answer to. During that, when I set that up with the big question, some of the rules of the game that I've reinforced with the students is that students are free to choose their own groups. They're also free to change their groups if they need to. And that's a really important tool for them to have, because if disagreements arise, they know they've got that safety net to be able to move to a different group. 
They can also move around freely. So if there's a group that perhaps stuck on an idea, as they're working, I walk around and prompt um, and perhaps pose little further questions. I might direct someone from a group to go over to another group to join in on that conversation, listen to how their conversation is going. So it's really about them all learning from each other rather than me as the teacher being the one that is delivering the information and content. They get to explore the question in a way that sparks their interest. Second phase, which is that investigation phase, it's really important as well to reinforce that it is only one device per group. And that's really important because otherwise, if every student has a device that they're looking at, they end up just honing in on that. Whereas the notion of this is around that collaborative learning environment. So the one device, I'll set them up with a sheet of butcher's paper and that way they can capture their thinking it's about making that thinking visible as well. So capturing it on the butcher's paper, we often refer back to it, but we certainly in the review phase, uh, we use it then. So in terms of the accountability, and I'll be honest, this is probably one of the things that first scared me before having a go at this was that level of accountability and will the students be on task? The review phase keeps them accountable and holds them accountable because they know at the end they have to present. So they need to stand and share their information, not necessarily everything they have, but certainly something that they found thought-provoking or something that was interesting to them or just their response to the big question. In terms of getting started using Sol, it was actually a colleague mentioned the work of Sagata Mitra to me in term two of 2020. Already being such a disruptive term with our lockdowns, it felt like the perfect time to just give it a go. I was nervous and I expressed that to my students. I think as teachers, we're so used to in a traditional setting, being in control, giving the content we want the students to know. This absolutely flips the script. So I mentioned to the students that we were going to have a go at something new. I'd never used it before. It was a new pedagogical approach and it would either work well or it wouldn't. And at the end of it, we'd kind of come back together and review and get some feedback on it. It was quite honestly the most transformational lesson that I've ever been a part of. That point in time absolutely shifted and transformed me into the teacher I am today. It was beyond um, an epiphany. Lights just sparked. In terms of that further impact on my practice, I'm not the teacher I was then. I've absolutely had a, a shift in philosophy and views, just ignited a spark. So as an educator, I get to witness students feeling empowered and owning their learning. I now use Soul at different times. So I might use it at the start of a unit, also might use it um, just throughout a unit if we need to delve deeper or if there's a topic that arises. It's changed the way I think about assessment, uh, going away from that traditional one standard assessment for every student, that cookie cutter, if you will, um, certainly allowing students to show their understanding and their knowledge in different ways. Really that realisation, when we trust our students and realise we don't actually need to be the ones in control. Engagement and the empowerment in these young people when they are trusted by their teachers to take a risk and own their learning and answering questions in a way that sparks their own curiosity and interest is really, it's been a life changer. I really agree with you, Yvette. You really got me when you said the teacher gives up some control. One of my favourite sayings is that we need to lose control to gain control in the classroom. And this can be scary for teachers. But doing this really puts the students in the centre of the learning. Kerry, do you have anything you would like to add? 
I found myself nodding a lot during uh, listening to Yvette talk there and I'm guessing that's because I was given the gift of time to go and actually watch Yvette in her classroom and to see a soul lesson in action and that's what got me into soul. Seeing someone else actually doing soul, living soul, the kids engaging in soul was the motivation that got me in to try it within my classroom. Uh, and I would encourage others if they have the chance to see someone else uh, actually doing this type of learning in their classroom to actually just see other people work in this way. There's no better way to learn. So watching others work is a real gift. I came to Seoul through Yvette, uh, watching her work, and uh, we were pretty inspired. There were three teachers that went to see her from my school. I came back and was inspired but didn't really know how to do it, where to start, what to do. And uh, my principal at the time was trying to do a feedback cycle and I thought this is the perfect opportunity for me to have a go at this. Uh, I'm going to run a soul lesson in my classroom and I'm going to use his feedback cycle with the students to see whether they liked it, whether they didn't like it, what went well, um, were they engaged, did they learn in this way. And so I did my first uh, soul lesson last year to do with a unit that I had taught many times, um, which involves uh, HASS and science concepts and some, a really large and engaging unit. I thought this is the perfect opportunity because I know the content well. And I think that that is a really key thing for teachers who are trying to design those big uh, overarching questions for their unit. I think if you know the content well, you know where you want your students to get with the, um, the content or the concept more than content, um, it makes it easier to develop those overarching questions to guide their inquiry and their questions. I gave it a go and I have to say that the feedback in that cycle was just amazing. I had almost every student at the end of that lesson put their hand up and say they wanted to speak to the principal about this style of learning, about what they had just experienced, about how they got to choose their group, they got to choose their question, they got to guide their own learning. Um, they were just so excited about the opportunity to take some ownership of their learning and to learn in a different way. And for some of them, it was as simple as they got to choose who they worked with and where, and that they were on the floor in the room or um, working outside in, with their group. Um, and I think that that, you know, just sparked some imagination and curiosity in some of them. They hadn't had the opportunity to experience for quite some time in um, a traditional classroom. I think that's really important that you know your content well to design those big questions. For my class in the SOL process, I agree completely with Yvette that it's important that they know the rules well for the SOL lesson, that you know there is one device within your group. You are allowed to move groups and make changes. That's really important. We talk a lot about the collaboration that needs to occur within your group, and that can be challenging when you first start this type of learning I found. Um, some kids are natural uh, collaborators and able to take turns and to share ideas and others just want the device and the pen and to take charge and for them that, that can be just as challenging um, to take a step back and to work collaboratively but it's a really important lesson. For my uh, year fours last year they found that last part of the three-step process uh, that presentation part difficult 
that was something we really had to work on uh, because they wanted to get up with their piece of paper and read everything that they'd found as opposed to present um, one concept or an idea that uh, really um, connected with them. So that was a part of the process that we really had to work on with our year fours. Just listening to you both, I was wondering, does it make a difference doing soul lessons with younger students compared to older students? With the uh, younger children, I when, when I first introduced the soul lessons, I actually gave them a visual thinking structure to help them get their thoughts in order. So they looked at like a PMI or a PMIQ so that they could align their their thinking with what what is a positive to do with this what is something that's maybe a negative and what what questions do I have and in fact we went back to those questions later on in our unit and so they were able to take their learning in a direction that they then wanted to within that topic. I was just going to add definitely with the age group of the students I work with being obviously that little bit older what I find is that I can pose questions to them that are a little bit more um, quite broad, um, where there may not even be an answer to them. So some of those questions, it might just be to encourage them to consider different perspectives. Uh, it just really depends. So certainly um, in saying that, though, I do use SOL for some questions in other subject areas as well, where I am wanting them to find a specific answer. So And they are perhaps, even though it's a big question, it might be a little bit more um, narrow than some of the broader concepts that we also certainly talk about as well. So there's a time and place for both. And I guess it's it's about knowing your students, knowing their capabilities. And there's all there's a lot of soft skills that actually sit underneath it that underpin that the first session is always there's that troubleshooting. There may be, as you mentioned, students that don't work well collaboratively. So it's about preempting those things. Um, if you can predict that it might happen, then you can prevent it. Today's students, or should I say Generation Z, ages 10 to 24, and Alpha, ages 0 to 9, were born into a world where algorithms kept them clicking, scrolling, and swiping at a frantic pace. So, how does education keep up? I would like to discuss with Kerry and Yvette how using soul sessions in their classrooms impacted on student engagement. And if a teacher was really wanting to try this approach, do you have any tips for them to give it a go? The student engagement is actually the reason why I didn't just do it once and move on. The engagement in my class was just, I think Yvette was saying before, like it was just a spark of light. It was incredible. I Last year's class was a particularly challenging class. We had um, a number of behaviours. We had very large range in abilities and skills and um, working levels within our classroom and yet this one style of learning was able to engage all the students in my class. It did take a little while for some of um, the children that were working at a different level. By the end of the process, oh my goodness, I wish I had a videoed it. It was incredible. This student, you know, fully engaged in the process and showing skills that there's no way she would have been able to show at the start of these these sessions and so engaged and wanting to get up and present to her peers and having an opinion. So the engagement level from all students, um, behaviour challenging students, uh, academically challenging students, 
everyone could find an element in Seoul that they would engage with, that they wanted to participate in. Um, and I think because they could take their learning uh, in whatever direction they wanted, and they did have a choice. Student voice and choice is something that just makes such a big difference to student engagement. Just listening to what you're saying, Kerry, I just love how you're talking about Seoul as being an inclusive pedagogical approach. Yvette, do you feel that this is the same in your room? It definitely. It's one of those tasks that everyone can come into at an entry level and students as well what I find with my class is they will align themselves with people that they can have additional support from if need be so quite often with the groups because there is that collaboration the children will pick the skill or pick the task to do or to contribute that matches their skill set so if writing is not their forte they possibly won't nominate to be the scribe they may be the person that nominates to start doing the research. And so Kerry mentioned student voice and student choice. That's the generation that we are teaching. So Simone, you mentioned with that swipe mentality and mindset, if students don't like something in the outside classroom world, they'll swipe on past it. So this is about giving them something that makes them want to connect, makes them want to stay present in the moment. And because it's not a teacher standing up in front of them, giving them all the information and talking at them or, you know, death by PowerPoint, they feel as though they've got that ownership. They've naturally got that engagement as well because it's choosing whatever aspect of the question that sparks something with them and they can explore it in whichever way they want. I've had some soul sessions where the topic has gone in, some groups have researched or gone in a direction that I hadn't even anticipated so when I have 11 and 12-year-old students able to do that, that to me as an educator is everything. Their knowledge and their understanding of that, they're then sharing with the rest of the group. So they're not just hearing my perspective. It's not my agenda. They're getting to explore things in their own way um, for their own interest as well. Sir Ken Robinson talked a lot about that we live in a place of curiosity, but in our education system, we have a culture of compliance. Do you agree with Sir Ken Robinson? Is there a place for curiosity in our classrooms? And if so, how can this be achieved using soul? Curiosity, if we think about even just the definition of curiosity, it's having that strong desire to know or learn something. And don't we want every classroom to be like that? Don't we want every classroom in every subject area for children to be coming in and desiring to learn? In terms of the questions as well to spark that curiosity or to have that curiosity just flowing the questions don't actually even need to always be teacher generated one thing i've been doing now so i've been obviously dabbling in soul for a little bit of time um, coming into kind of the second year but in my class what we now have is a wonder wall students add questions to that wonder wall just in our everyday dialogue and classroom interactions so if they have questions or ponderings or wanderings they'll write them on a post-it note and add them to our wonder wall from that we've actually had co-constructed big questions that we've wanted to then delve deeper into and again that was their curiosity was sparked first by I wonder what or I wonder if or this is a question I have and from that taking that and you know, well let's explore that further and we'll all explore that further. So I think when, when students get that opportunity and they know that they can ask questions and they're not questions that are then just going to be forgotten about, they're questions that 
mean something to them and we are going to come back to it we're going to let them have an opportunity to learn more about that they naturally become empowered their curiosity is then sparked to find out more and it's just a situation where in terms of curiosity there is that strong desire for students to learn and it's the right type of environment they're just primed they're primed to learn and primed to be engaged I couldn't agree more, I don't think, with Sir Ken Robinson. I think that compliance used to be the goal of education, but I feel that now we need to move forward from that. We're no longer educating children to work in factories and to have to work in lines and to achieve the same goals at the end of the day. The book called Empower, um, they talk very much about this process and how compliance is no longer the goal of education and in fact it says that students who are simply taught to comply and do tasks because that's what they were told to do will always need someone else's rules to follow whereas you know when we empower our students it gives them their own voice and choice and um, they feel empowered then to take direction and to take their learning in whatever direction they want and that actually requires discipline and hard work it's not the easy option you know um, and that's so important and I find that when we give the students their own voice and choice they are automatically you have that engagement and so from there we need to move forwards into empowerment I'm not saying that I'm an expert on that not at all in fact I feel like I'm still in the engaged phase where I've got the children where I want them to be they're engaged in their learning because they do have that little bit of freedom to, to take their learning in the right way or the way they want they want to see it go but we need to be moving forwards more into that empowerment where they take that natural curiosity that they have and that they come to us with you know when they start prep they couldn't be more excited to be learning all these new things and gradually our system sometimes takes that enthusiasm away from them and we need to give it back to them and I think this is the perfect way for us to move that way to, to keep that curiosity in our children. Before we leave today from your wealth of experience can you dig into your deep learning toolkit and share with our listeners one highly effective strategy that you use that allows for deeper thinking in the classroom. Kerry, what strategy are you sharing from your toolkit? A gallery walk. So this is just simply where we have our um, students working in uh, a group around a particular topic and each group could be working uh, about around the same topic and so they investigate that topic uh, for however long you see fit. And then one person in your in that group will stay with the group and the other members of the group will walk around to the other groups, um, one group at a time, and they are able to question the person that's left at the group uh, about what they have on their page um, and to ask questions about why they, that particular group came up with those answers or definitions or whatever the, the uh, question posed asked them to do and then uh, they will work, walk their way around all of the groups until they've gotten all the way back around to their own group at the start. Yvette, do you have one for us? I've actually been using a strategy called projecting across time. So it's uh, a thinking routine from Project Zero. And basically what it is, is taking a topic and then students can, uh, first of all, map what they currently already know about that topic. But then as the name suggests with projecting 
across time. It's reaching back in time, 10, 100, 1,000 years, and then also projecting forward, reaching forward in time, those same increments. So whether it's 10, 100, 1,000, you can change the years up depending on what it is. But I find my students really love that. And it's, again, getting them to look at something and how it's evolved. And then also forward planning for that or projecting into the future, they're anticipating and again where that curiosity comes in because they're thinking about how it might change. So that would be my one, projecting across time. And finally, my strategy is to make sure you are cultivating curiosity in your classrooms with your students. One simple way to do this is using a routine called See, Think, Wonder. You can pop up a picture on the screen, a quote or even an art piece and just ask your students firstly to think about what they see. What is in that image? Share these ideas with the partner or in the group. Now extend their thinking and ask them, what else do you notice? And then, what are your wonderings? This is such a simple routine that can be used at the start of a session for a transition or just something you could have in your classroom for students to think about. We hope you find success with some of these strategies. I would like to thank Kerry and Yvette for sharing their insights today and being part of episode three of Deep Dive.